Good morning. My name is Brett Jeter. Uh, I think it is a privilege that I get to stand before you today and preach God's Word. I love this church, and I've been here since it started. Uh, so it is a great joy to me to be able to do this. We do expositional preaching here at Grace Community Church, which means we go passage by passage, book by book. And we've been going through the book of Malachi for the last six weeks. And this is the last week of Malachi. We're in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. In God's sovereignty, this is where we have landed. Before we read the text, I want to talk about the main point of the text. The main point of the text is the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was offered once to bear the sins of many and will appear again, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. The Lord's second coming is what believers should long for and earnestly desire. That day is described as a thief that we must be ready for. I want to take a moment and imagine that the governor of Mississippi calls you, and he tells you, that he will be at your house in 10 minutes. As soon as you hang up the phone, what is the most likely response that you will have? Are you going to take a nap? Are you going to make a sandwich? No, you're going to frantically clean the house and get something and prepare it for the governor. How much more our Lord Jesus Christ? He is coming quickly. My sincere hope is that we studying this passage, will have an earnest desire for the coming of the Lord Jesus and live lives that make sense in light of the fact that Jesus says that he is coming soon. Let's read the text. So everyone turn to Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked." For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let's pray. God, we thank you for saving us through the glorious gospel of your Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word. And God, we pray that you would enliven our hearts to it, that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things from your word. God, that you would be with me as I preach. God, that you would stand by me and strengthen me. Lord, that you would be with the hearers, that everyone would be encouraged and convicted and built up and warned. 
God, that we would be in the hasten, the coming of your son, Jesus, by what we hear today. God, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So immediately, when we get to the text, we see the word for in verse 1. What for tells us is that there's a link between the previous passage and this passage. And actually, in the Hebrew text, there is no chapter 4. It's a continuation of chapter 3. So these verses could actually be read as Malachi 3, 19 through 26. So in verses 16 through 18, we have a continued discourse where Malachi is prophesying towards the faithful remnant. In verses 13 through 15 in Malachi chapter 3, he has completed his disputation. He has disputed in six different ways the way that the covenant community of Israel has left their first love and have walked into uh, formalized worship and not true worship. In verses 16 through 18, he's going to contrast that, those people with the people that fear his name, a people that are saved by grace, that esteem his name according to verse 16. And a book of remembrance is written for them because of their faithfulness. The people around them had departed from true worship and have done awful things in God's temple by offering blemished sacrifices. They've married daughters of foreign gods. They've robbed God with their tithes and their offerings. But there's been a faithful remnant. This remnant, this remnant thinks, well, what's the difference between the wicked and the righteous? In verse 15, it says, Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So there's seemingly no distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And what verse 18 tells us in, verse, in chapter 3, that once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. So what Malachi says is that one day there's going to be a time where there's a clear distinction between the righteous and the wicked. What is his answer? His answer is the day is coming. So in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Behold, the day is coming. This is how he is going to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous will, be, will get relief, and the wicked will be punished. Malachi argues that the only reason that the wicked prosper is the patience of God. There is a day coming when God's patience will run out, and God will vindicate His justice. The charge that God is idle and does not care about unrighteousness, will not stand. It will be no more. Behold, tells us in this verse, to marvel at the day where this will be made right. So, as we come, the phrase, the day of the Lord, the day is coming. This phrase is mentioned four times in these six verses. Verse 6 tells us that it's the great and awesome day of the Lord. This day refers to His second coming, our Lord Jesus. This is not a new term that's used in the Old Testament. It's used in the Old and in the New. Ryan talked about this a few weeks ago. This term follows a term called successive fulfillment. The day of the Lord comes and it goes, and it comes and it goes, and it's still proclaimed to be coming. The day of the Lord is proclaimed in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Obadiah and Zephaniah. 
For you to get a picture of what this day would feel like, let's turn to Zephaniah chapter 1. I want to point out a couple of things in Zephaniah chapter 1. When we get to verse 14, this is what the word of the Lord says. The great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. So this is a flavor of what the day of the Lord would look like in the Old Testament. The two things I want to pull out here is that the day of the Lord is a day of wrath for the wicked. It is a day of judgment. This coming day, when the Israelites would hear this from Malachi, they would associate judgment. But also, they would see that in verses 17 and 18 in Zephaniah, that the complete end of all the inhabitants of the earth had not come. That there was still another day coming. We see this, that as Israel and Judah are put into exile and Assyria and Babylon are judged, there is still another day coming. This means these days are a shadow. The days mentioned in the Old Testament are a type. These prefigure and point to the ultimate and final day. The ultimate and final day of the Lord is the day that we are seeing here. This is the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says this, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So it is fully aware to the Thessalonians that the day of the Lord is coming. So the day of the Lord is coming and is near. The final day is the culmination of all of these days. And the figure, the main point of that day is the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will be the central figure? Who will be the cause of that day? And what will be the effects? That's what this sermon is going to deal with. The cause, the central figure of that day is our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn your attention to verse 2, where he calls Jesus the Son of Righteousness. This has universally been seen to be our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. He is the one who warms all those who trust in him and scorches all those who who rebel against him. The best place that we see this association with the Son and Jesus is in Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, there is Zechariah, who is the father of John the Baptist. He is going to say this in verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, and to guide our feet 
into the way of peace. Jesus Christ is the sunrise. He is the one who will guide our feet in the way of peace. Because of God's mercy, the Lord Jesus will return and give us peace. There in the end will be no sun or moon, but the Lord Jesus Christ in the new Jerusalem will be the lamp and He is the Lamb of God. There will be no sun or moon. He is The glory of God will be the light, and the lamp is the Lamb in the new Jerusalem. He is the Son. That figure, He is also the Son of righteousness. So He's not only the Son who brings light, but He's the Son who brings righteousness. Righteousness here is actually better translated with vindication. He is going to vindicate those who have put their trust in Him, and he is going to reward with wrath those who have not trusted in him. In 2 Thessalonians, which Ryan read earlier, he grants relief to those who are suffering, and he grants affliction to those who afflict others. He will display his perfect justice on that final day, and he is the central figure. The second coming is a proclamation of God's justice and his righteousness. Evildoers will no longer defile him, and righteous will no longer be suffering. Before we talk about the effect of that final day, verse 1 is going to talk about that effect in verse 2 as well. I want to put this into a broader framework of the work of Christ. The work of Christ can sometimes stop after His crucifixion. But the work of Christ continues in His resurrection, His ascension, and His reigning as King in his return. He is the suffering servant and the conquering king. He is the lamb who was slain and also the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is deserving of worship for his suffering and his reign. He said it was finished. He ascended and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he is now putting his enemies under his feet. And one day he will return. The mortal wound to sin and his enemies was done at the cross, but the final vanquishing will happen at his second coming. In Psalm 110, one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament, God the Father says to God the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That day is coming. We are living in that middle time where the Lord Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom with his incarnation, and will return and consummate his kingdom at his second coming. We are marching toward that day. So verse 1, here is the effect. What is the effect of his coming for the wicked? Verse 1 says, The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. When the Lord returns, He will appropriately punish the wicked. This can be difficult for us to grasp at times, but largely that is a result of our low view of God and our low view of our sin. If we understand His holiness and greatness and our wickedness, we will see His judgment as right. It will be appropriate. The gravity of sin makes hell a fitting end for those who don't trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The day of the Lord is prepared for the wicked and the evildoers. Earlier in this book, he says the evildoers test God and escape. That will no longer be so. The consuming fire will overtake them in the last day. Stubble and chaff is what the Lord says these people will be. The chaff is the remains after the harvest. These dried remains, small, that are burned up in a moment. In that last day, the wicked will not give resistance. There will be no counterattack. The Lord will easily, decisively, and quickly burn up his enemies. He will come, and that day will be burning like an oven. That day is associated with fire and blaze. The New Testament describes hell as unquenching fire. Jesus said it is a fiery furnace. In Mark chapter 9, he says the fire is not quenched. And in Matthew chapter 13, he says there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He will set them ablaze. This is the appropriate end for the wicked. This flaming fire is not metaphorical. It is literal. Fire communicates the intensity of the pain that will be found in hell. The suffering of those who rebel against God will be intense. Think about for a moment a time where you burned your hand while you were cooking on an oven. The intensity of the pain was almost unbearable, but the pain subsides. The pain goes away. And you finally get relief. The pain on the last day for those who are evil will never go away. That intense pain will only, that we have, be a prefiguring or a drop of what the pain will be on the last day for those who are wicked. Imagine not only this pain that lasts for a moment, but this pain that lasts forever. The Bible says, in verse 1, that it will leave them neither root nor branch. When you cut down a tree, if you leave the roots, the tree will most likely grow back. If you take out the roots, there will be no growth. There will be no more for that tree. This is what Malachi is saying, that the people who are set ablaze will have no hope. There is no second chance. There is no turning back. Hell has no exits according to Leonard Ravenhill. The wicked man in Luke 16, the rich man, who is burning and asking and begging Abraham to give him relief, he is still in hell in Luke 16. And 2,000 years later, he is no closer to the day of relief than he was 2,000 years ago. The intensity of the pain is only matched by the eternality of the pain that will be delivered on the last day to those who are in hell. I want to take a moment to apply this to us. So most of us are in Christ. Most of us will not experience this. But, for, but many of us, all of us, have friends, co-workers, neighbors, family, that within a hundred years will spend eternity in hell. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
And what is the proper response? He says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. The only logical response for us as a community and as you as a believer is to plead with your neighbors, friends, and coworkers to come to Christ while there's still time. There will be a time where God's patience runs out and hell will be the only end for those that we love. Do you talk to your friends and family like this is a reality? Or are you asleep? Do you match with your pleading and your discussions the intensity of the pain that will be felt by people you know? Let's be a people who contemplate these eternal things as a reality and not a myth. The day of the Lord is not just pain. The day of the Lord is salvation. So let's read verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. The day of the Lord is a day of salvation. The day of the Lord is a day of joy and freedom and brightness and liberation. This is the day that we are all waiting for. The people of God returned from exile. They returned and rebuilt the temple, but the glory of the temple was not the same as the glory of Solomon's temple. They were still under foreign rule and oppressed by their enemies. And further, the exile did not purify them. Their compatriots were still struggling with sin and walking away from God. This gross rebellion would, must have been really difficult for the faithful to bear. These expectations were not met. But there will be a day where their expectations will be met. And that's what Malachi's response is. The expectations that were not met after exile will be met on the final day. Our hope Our blessed hope is when the Lord Jesus returns. Even though these followers of Jesus had been saved from their sins, become the treasured possession of God, they're spared according to verses 16 through 18, and a book of remembrance was written for them, they still had pain and trial and distress. But the Lord returns, and He removes with His brightness and warmth all those who dwell in darkness and despair. He is associated with a sunrise, with healing in its wings. Sunrises are beautiful, and we love to go see them. As the rays of the sun go out over the horizon, we are reminded of of newness and new beginnings and hope. When the sun rises, there will be healing in its wings. Those rays will be for the healing of the world and the healing of us. The world is groaning for the final day. The, the, the world is burdened under sin. And the Lord Jesus will return and liberate the world. He comes to bring His blessing. In the song, Joy to the World, He says, Let no more sin and sorrow meet. Let... The thorns, that no more thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. He will bring healing to this world and liberation 
but also bring healing to us. Those of us who are burdened by sickness, by death, by constant ailments, the Lord will completely heal on the last day. He will bring it all under His rule. Alzheimer's disease, seizures, heart attacks will be completely done away with in the last day. We will have no more sorrow, no more tears, and no more pain. What an amazing truth wiped off the map. All sickness and hospitals and clinics. Those tears will be swallowed up. If you are struggling with sickness and medicines and doctor's appointments, there will be a day where you do not have to struggle with that anymore. For those of us who have difficulty with loved ones who are sick and are dying, there's a way to grieve with hope. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells the people that there's a way for them to grieve, but not grieve like the world, but to grieve with hope. What is that hope? That hope is the return of our Lord Jesus. When he descends with a shout, with the trumpet, and we will meet the Lord in the air. And he says, we will always be with the Lord. And the way he ends it is he says, encourage one another with these words. It is an amazing encouragement that the sufferings of this present time will not be worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed. Death will not have victory. There is no sting in death anymore. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So not only does he come to bring healing, but he comes to bring joy. In verse 2, he says, You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. It would be enough that he came and brought healing, but it's even more that he comes to bring unmistakable joy. A calf that is shut up all day in a stall, when the stall is lifted and the calf runs with unmistakable enthusiasm, clicks his heels and runs on the horizon with joy that he has finally been released. This is unmistakable joy. And this picture is a picture of us. Even though we love Jesus and are saved by grace and have hope, we are still burdened. We, are st- we still have burdens of this tent that we live in. But one day, we will take on heavenly dwellings and there will be complete freedom and ultimate joy. Every joy we experience in this life is meant to point to the final joy that we will have in Jesus. Every scoop of ice cream... Every home run is meant to point to the best joy, and that is found in Jesus Christ himself. He is our blessed hope. Our salvation will be complete on that day. Right now, we still dwell in this tent where we have sin and we have this flesh. Our glorification is waiting for us. The beatific vision where we see Jesus Christ as he is. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. In this world, tribulation. But take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. Psalm 16 tells us that in His presence is fullness of joy. And Jesus, as the central figure of the second coming, will bring us joy unspeakable. 
This is seen in the Heidelberg Catechism. In question 52, they knew this. They set it up this way. In question 52, they say, What comfort is it that Christ shall come to judge the living and dead? And then the answer is given. But the question is framed in such a way that the second coming is comfort to the believer, to the righteous. He goes further in verse 3. Not only do we get healing and freedom and joy, but God's people actually triumph over their enemies. Let's read verse 3. And you shall tread down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Not only are we spared according to Malachi 3.18, not only do we get freedom and joy and healing in the last day, but we get victory. God conquers His enemies on the last day. And we amazingly share in His victory. Our enemies and the Lord's will be ashes under our feet. The judgment and the victory is the Lord's victory. We do not accomplish it. He puts His enemies under His feet on the last day. By virtue of our union with Christ, we share in all of His victories. He accomplished a victory and we get the spoils. We are God's children and therefore are fellow heirs with Christ, according to Romans chapter 8. He is our forerunner and captain. The Bible teaches us in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. Paul is speaking to the Roman church, and he says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So as a people who are assaulted by Satan and his schemes, who he's a roaring lion trying to devour, it would have been an incredible encouragement when Paul tells them that Satan will soon be trampled under their feet. It is the Lord's victory. Our captain has come to liberate the world from wickedness and evil and sin. Persecution, distress, abortion, pedophilia, all of these wickedness thing, wicked things that affect our world. Autocrats and ISIS. These enemies will be put to death. Injustice that we see all around the world will be crushed. Don't we long for that day where there is no more injustice, no more wickedness, and righteousness dwells. As Americans, we can sometimes not feel the full weight of how encouraging this verse would be. Imagine that you're in Soviet Russia 30 years ago when Christianity was outlawed, or present-day North Korea, where it is not okay to be a Christian. Imagine you have friends that are continually harassed by the police, tortured in jail for their faith. Imagine that when you start a Bible study, immediately the authorities come in, ransack the place, haul off your friends and your neighbors to an unknown location and torture them. Imagine going to sleep every night, praying 
that the Lord would protect you and your family from such devastation. Imagine what that would be like for you. Then imagine when the Lord returns, He will crush these enemies. He will wipe them off the map. And we will stand over their ashes. What a great encouragement it would be for people in present suffering that the future vanquishing of God's enemies. To drive this home, I want to read Psalm 98. Turn with me to Psalm 98. We'll start in verse 4, and we'll see the joy that comes when God comes as judge. Psalm 98, verse 4. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it and the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The world awaits the coming of the judge. He is at the door. And we should clap our hands with trumpets and give joyful noise because He comes to vanquish His enemies. All right, I want to apply this in two major ways before we get to the end of this passage. I want us to be a people that can say with all the Bible writers, Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. What would make us long for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? Hebrews 9.28 tells us that this is a defining characteristic of those who follow Jesus. Is it possible that you do not desire the coming of Jesus? That you kind of want Him to wait until you get married, or do you have children, or till this job is done, or till you complete some task? I want to encourage us that the day of the Lord is a day to be eagerly desirous of, that we should be awake and long for it. Two major reasons. The first, the sinfulness of sin. Sin is awful. It's cosmic treason. Sometimes we can be numb to the sinfulness of sin. How heinous it is. How much it affects us. How much it takes us away from our Savior. One day, the Lord will remove all sin from us and we will be glorified. We will be released from sin. And in that day will be a day we are no longer hindered. Shouldn't we long for a day that we don't have to confess our sins anymore? That we are not burdened by our failures? That we are not hindered from true worship by our weakness? In Philippians chapter 3, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ 
He will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. Oh, don't we wait for the day where this body is put to the earth and we have glorified bodies. Let's long for that day. Number two, the glory of Jesus makes us long for Him. Right now, we see dimly, but then we will see face to face. Jesus is infinite in glory and majesty. A taste of Him would last forever. We should taste and see that the Lord is good in this life and long to see Him as He is. If you love Jesus now, you will want more of Him. Jesus is glorious. But if we are distracted, if we are focused on lesser realities, we will be numb. We will not desire a place that is completely engulfed with the worship of the Lamb who is slain. The more we love and enjoy Jesus, we will be able to say with Paul that our desire is to depart and be with Christ. Not just heaven, but heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. Why would he say to live is Christ and to die is gain, except that his Savior is there? Let's long to see our Savior and be like him. All right. I want to get back to Malachi, to our final section. In Malachi chapter 4, Malachi has has completed his prophecy. And he's now going to give us a conclusion. It's a concluding exhortation. The last three verses are the completion of the Old Testament. The last three verses of God's revelation to his people before he shuts his mouth for 400 years before the coming of Jesus. He is going to look back. He's going to look forward. He's going to point the people of God to the law of Moses, and then to the ministry of the prophets. He is going to reference the law in Elijah as the prototypical prophet, as a, as a prototype of all the prophets. The law was given to point people to God and how to be right with Him. But it also pointed to the coming Messiah. The prophets came to indict the people of God in their wickedness and not keeping the law. And they are covenant prosecutors. And Elijah is the key of all. It is not an accident that in the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, Jesus appears with Moses and Elijah. These two figures prefigure and show the Old Testament. Remember, on the Emmaus Road, when Jesus appears to the disciples, he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interprets them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So let's take Moses and the prophets in turn. In verse 4, Malachi is going to exhort the people of God to remember the law of God. Let's read it. Verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. It's a very simple verse. He tells the Israelites that they need to remember the law of God. This law was given 
at Mount Sinai, or Horeb is another way to talk about the region of Sinai. He wants them to remember all the statutes and rules of God, not just the Ten Commandments. He does not want them to casually remember the law of God, but he wants them to remember in such a way that they would be doers of the law of God. Remember in Jesus, in the Gospels, he says, remember Lot's wife. Why does he tell them to do that? He tells them to do that so that they would not be like Lot's wife, that they would do something. In the same way, he does not want the Israelites in this passage to be mere hearers of the law, but doers of it. This harkens back to the exhortations that are given in Deuteronomy and in Joshua. At the end of Moses' life, he addresses the people of Israel before they enter the promised land, and he calls them back to remember the law of the Lord. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32, and I want you to see this. This is very similar. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, he says this in verse 44. Moses came down and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all the words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, and they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land you are going over the Jordan to possess. Moses points back the people of God to the word of God before he leaves them and they enter into the promised land. Joshua does the same thing in Joshua chapter 24. This is what Malachi has in mind. Remember the law of the Lord in such a way that you do it. Now, the law of the Lord is holy and righteous and good. And the psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. The law of the Lord is perfect and revives the soul. But the elephant in the room is that we do not keep the law. We are unable to, to keep it completely. We break it constantly. We are like that covenant community in Malachi that breaks the law of God. We haven't kept His commandments and we have fallen short of His glory. This is why we need someone like John the Baptist to herald the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where he's going to point us next. In verses 5 and 6, Malachi is going to point us to the future when there's one coming who's going to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The day of the Lord is coming, the day of utter destruction and distress. What is our hope in that day? It's repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is one coming 
who is like Elijah, who is going to prepare the way for our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered why John the Baptist takes such a central role in the beginning of the Gospels? Well, it begins in this verse. This verse talks about Elijah who is coming. The people of God were waiting for someone like Elijah who would come and prepare the way of the Lord. It's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 40, and it's mentioned here. Verse 5 begins with, Behold, because we are going to marvel at what comes next. Malachi proclaims the great and awesome day, the day of days, will come, but there will be a means of escape. We do not have to be utterly destroyed, that there is a way to be saved. Elijah is the most important prophet of the Old Testament. He was so remarkable in his ministry that he was assumed into heaven without dying. You have Enoch and Elijah as the only two figures of the Old Testament who never died. This brings lots of confusion and speculation about his ministry. I do not want to get into all of that at this point, but I think it is very clear that Elijah here is spoken of as John the Baptist. Let me give you some reasons why. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verse 16, where the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah. In verse 16, he says, talking of the son that Zechariah will have, he says this, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Gabriel says that he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. His ministry will have an effect of turning fathers to children and disobedient to the wisdom of the just. He will also prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. His ministry will be a preparing ministry. He is the last prophet of the Old Testament. John the Baptist is the culmination of all prophets. Come to proclaim repentance and prepare the way for Jesus. In Matthew eleven fourteen, Jesus proclaims that John the Baptist is the Elijah who is to come. In Matthew 17... I want to read what he communicates to the disciples. In Matthew 17, he says this. He's at the Mount of Transfiguration, and they're coming down. And he says this. In verse 9, he says, And they will come down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, as they came down the mountain. Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. They did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So this prophecy in Malachi is clearly associated with the ministry of John the Baptist. What is the content of his ministry? 
The content of his ministry is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the herald who comes before the king. He says in John chapter 3, he must increase, talking about Jesus. But John the Baptist says, I must decrease. What will the effect of the proclamation of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ bring? Verse 6 tells us this. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. This is not exactly what you would think. The last verse of the Old Testament. John the Baptist is going to come before that great and awesome day. And what will be the effect? Family harmony. You would think that true worship or great amounts of giving, heartfelt service would be the effect. But what Malachi points to is family harmony. A community that doubts the electing love of God, who doesn't esteem God, who doesn't fear God, will ultimately have horizontal relationship problems. We learned this several weeks ago, that this covenant community had left the first love, their love of God. And as a result, they had married foreign women, women who worshipped other gods. And they had divorced their wives and their husbands. Family discord and calamity is a direct response of a people who do not worship God. It is no accident that marriage and family are such in such discord in and outside the church. We live in a, in a day where insubordinate children is normal. Fathers who neglect their children is normal. This is inside and outside the church. What is the answer for this state of affairs? What is the way that Malachi proclaims that these wrongs can be made right? It is the ministry of the Elijah who is to come, John the Baptist. You see, repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ changes somebody. They are born again and become new creations. Someone who meets the Lord Jesus Christ will never be the same. The old is past and the new is come. When we behold the glory of Jesus, we are changed. Light shines in our heart, and we become born-again creations that worship and glory in Jesus and walk in a way that pleases Him. Let's look at what John the Baptist says in Matthew chapter 3. His ministry points to our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we meet the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance comes. In Matthew chapter 3, let's get a flavor of his ministry and what the effects of this ministry will be. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. What was the content of his preaching? Repent! The kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this, he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, 
The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. In Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to him at his baptism, he said, this is his response, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Doesn't this sound like Malachi? Doesn't this sound like there is time? There is a means of escape? Repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has his winnowing fork in his hand, who will separate the sheep from the goats. He is coming, and John the Baptist is saying, there is time to repent. There is is one coming that you must meet, and you can repent and believe in this one who is to come. And on top of that, when you repent, there is fruit that comes from that repentance. So ultimately, when we repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the fruit is Christ-likeness. And ultimately, that will be seen in our families. What Malachi is saying in Malachi chapter 4, that there is still time to repent. There is a day coming where utter destruction will come, but those who flee to Christ and cling to Him and put their trust in Him will find refuge in that day. If you kiss the Son, you will not perish in the way. His wrath is kindled quickly. But blessed are those who take refuge in Him. When someone is saved by grace, their family is transformed. Verse 6 tells us that day is coming, and there is still time, and there is still hope. Repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to close with two applications. Ryan read 2 Peter chapter 3 earlier, so we won't read it again, but two main exhortations as we close. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he talks about the day of the Lord coming. In the first part, he says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I want to speak to you who are not in Christ. If you have never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a day coming. That day is burning like an oven where you will meet the Lord Jesus Christ and it will not be a happy day for you. It will be a day of wrath and vengeance. 
What 2 Peter is saying is that God is patient with you. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. I'm pleading with you. There is still time to not be under His wrath. To not be inflicted with pain forever and ever and ever. There is room for you to come to Christ. The Lord's patience will run out and you will be consumed forever. Sulfur and fire, day and night, forever and ever is for you. But there is hope. You can put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can put your faith in Him and you will be safe in that day. Come to Jesus. Do not wait. Come even today. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. People are cut off day after day. And you don't want to be in that last day to think, I thought there was time. There will be no time in that day. And lastly, for those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have put their faith in Christ, let us hasten the coming of the day of God. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved... What sort of people ought we to be? Isn't that the question? How should we then live? What should our life be like in light of the coming of the Messiah? Lives of holiness and godliness. Asleep and not paying attention to eternal things makes no sense in light of the coming day. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Why is that? Because there's a day coming where those things in the world are going to be dissolved. And it only makes sense to focus on eternal things. Things that are above and not things that are on earth. Let us not be idle or distracted. Let us be like pilgrims that are heading to the celestial city. That are waiting for and are like our fathers in the faith who are looking for a city that had foundations whose author and builder was God. Let us not look to this city that is crumbling and going away. This world is not our home. Let us long for the day where we will be in our true home. 1 Thessalonians says that this day is like a thief. And so what should we do? We should be awake and not sleep or slumber, not be drunk, but be sober, because the day is coming. The only logical response that day is waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God. Let us live lives that are like Martin Luther said. Let us live like Jesus died yesterday, rose again this morning, and is coming again tomorrow. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your salvation. God, you have given us unbelievable, unmeasurable grace at the cross. And God, you're coming again. You will wipe away every tear from our eyes, that you will bring joy to all of us who who dwell in darkness. And we come, we wait, and we long for that day. Lord, thank you. Thank you for hope, that you do not leave us without hope. God, make us people who are holy in light of that day. In your son's name we pray. Amen.